Inflation now stands at 11%, and with Jeremy Hunt due to deliver his autumn statement tomorrow, Britain is bracing for austerity 2.0. But does it need to be this way? I'll be asking James Meadway. For the rest of the show, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing good. It feels like we're kind of back to the natural order of things for a little while um, with me on this side, but it's good It's good to be here. <laughs> I love the natural order of things as a description of um, me hosting Tiski and you being a co-host. You were very good as a host, Dahlia. I'm sure our audience will be seeing more of you in my chair in the near future. Well, I can't call it my chair anymore. New data released today shows inflation is at the highest level it has been in 41 years. It now stands at 11.1%. The main driver of that inflation is still increased energy costs, but many foodstuffs have rocketed in price as well. So we have some of them here. Milk, 48%. That's how much it has gone up in the last year. Margarine, 42% more expensive. Pasta, 34% more expensive. See, oils and fats, 33%. Butter, 29%. So lots of completely essential foodstuffs. So you can't really avoid these. And that means that many people are going to be feeling the pain in their pockets. Now, this incredibly high level of inflation is principally caused by a war in Ukraine and other supply chain issues. But Rishi Sunak has been clear. To get inflation under control, we will need to make difficult decisions at home. What's people's number one anxiety at the moment? It's the rising cost of things. It's inflation. That's what's eating into people's living standards. Uh, the Chancellor rightly described it as insidious. It makes people poorer. That's what inflation does. Uh, and it's the enemy that we need to face down. And I want to make sure that we do that uh, and we do it as quickly as possible. I want to limit the increase in mortgage rates. That was Rishi Sunak speaking in Bali at the G20. Tomorrow, his chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, will lay out an autumn statement which is billed to deliver £21 billion of tax rises and £33 billion of public spending cuts. Another man tasked with keeping a lid on inflation is the governor of the Bank of England, he was in the House of Commons today, where he was grilled by members of the Treasury Select Committee. The charge being made against him is that he didn't raise interest rates fast enough and so failed to prevent skyrocketing inflation. This was his defence. With the benefit of hindsight, obviously there were things that would have been different. I, the one I asked myself, you know, and I've said this in speech, is the question about is the labour force, because I don't think we could foresee that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. I don't really think that's... I, I agree we should put that to one side. Yeah. And I think we need to focus on these supply chain and, and, and domestic factors, which yeah. I think you're now acknowledging, Governor, you did miss calculate the potential risks well, when furlough came to an end. I think so that's I'll, what I'm hearing take you both say. of those. Um, perfectly reasonable. So I think, and by the way, I think one of the challenges we have here is that, you know, the view that if you take an individual single supply shock that they, you know, they work their way through and you don't necessarily, you don't respond to the first rounds of effects of them, it's the sort of what might happen thereafter, that if we had only had one supply shock, um, which at the, you know, in the post, in, in the period when we were initially recovering from COVID, I think was a reasonable assumption as the supply chain shock took effect. I think the response to that would be very different from the situation we now have, where we've had this string of sequence of supply shocks with no breaks in between. This is the, one of the challenges I think, you know, central banks around the world face, frankly, that we've had a sequence of supply shocks, which you, know, that you couldn't predict, I think, at the, at the time that we were going to get this sequence. For insight into the news on inflation and the politics surrounding it, I spoke earlier to James Meadway. I started by asking him why Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt think that raising taxes and cutting spending 
will get a grip on inflation. Well, the, the theory they're working on here is a, a very basic one, really. Uh, it doesn't apply especially well at the moment, but we can come on to that. And it's the idea that the problem with the economy in Britain right now is basically that there's too much demand. There's people going out, they're all got too much money, they're spending far too much, and it's uh, pushing prices up. So what government needs to do is cut back its own spending. So there's less demand in the economy, and that'll start to reduce the pressure on prices. I mean, that's roughly where they're going. It's the only way this makes sense, by the way, because otherwise it kind of doesn't. And that's, that's the bare bones description of what they're trying to work on and the story they're going to try and convince people of. There's a nuance on it. There's a slight nuance on it, which goes something like, if we reduce borrowing now, that will keep interest rates down. That will give us more space in the future to deal with higher prices and the higher costs that we have to pay for everything. And that's good in terms of what people anticipate inflation might do in the future, which is a more sophisticated uh, version of the same argument. Fairly clearly, neither of these work very well. The obvious problem in the British economy right now, along with lots and lots of other places in the world, but particularly in Britain, is not that people have too much money and are spending too much, and this is pushing up prices. It is rather clearly that people don't have enough money and prices are going up anyway, because prices are going up because of big things happening in the rest of the world, the invasion of Ukraine, ongoing COVID lockdowns now easing in China, uh, the after effects of COVID itself, extreme weather hitting food production, transport, all sorts of stuff. Absolutely nothing whatsoever really to do with how much money the government is spending over here or how much we're paying in taxes for anything. Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt, they're not pretending that inflation was caused by too much demand in the economy. They they seem to understand and are quite clear that inflation was caused by this, this war in Russia and supply chain issues caused by COVID. But I think what they're saying is for this inflation not to become more permanent, for it not to become more inbuilt into the economy. What you've got to do is take some demand out of the economy so that people don't respond to high prices by demanding higher wages. And then we get into this wage price spiral. Why do you not think that is a correct assumption that they're making? Two parts to this. And Andrew Bailey, who's the governor of the Bank of England, has been making this case as well. It's the, it's the kind of basic logic of why they think putting up interest rates is um, going to impact on inflation. It's one of the routes that they expect to happen is that it'll cause a recession or worsen recession. Unemployment will go up. Because unemployment's gone up, people will be too frightened of unemployment to demand higher wages. People don't demand higher wages. That, in the theory, won't feed into price rises somewhere down the line. The basic problem here is that that we, we saw the figures for wage rises yesterday. In money terms, they're actually going up quite a lot, like 5% or more for regular pay. But that's way behind inflation at 11%. So fairly clearly, this idea of a wage price spiral, that wages are going up so much to push prices up, isn't there. And it isn't likely to happen in the future either for the very simple fact that look, the inflation we're getting now is driven by things like the massive increase over the last year in the price of natural gas and oil. So it's increased, well, increased the cost of heating and electricity in your home. It's increased the cost to businesses that use uh, lots of natural gas, refining, glass making, lots of things like this. Transport costs have gone up. That's a big push. That's actually turned out really well. If you're one of the people producing oil or gas, oil companies are seeing astronomical profits. But then if you turn around and say, oh, well, we're not going to do anything about those profits. We're just going to ask people to be paid less. 
you're not actually dealing with the problem here. You're not dealing with those price rises. You're not dealing with the profits emerging from those price rises. You're just looking over here and squeezing away at wages instead. It isn't going to work. I mean, truthfully, I think inflation probably will come down over the next six months or so. Natural gas prices are falling. Food prices will probably continue to rise, but it'll, it'll go up at a, at a slower pace than perhaps it has done. Overall, inflation will come down. Government may claim a success from this. It will have nothing to do with them. It's not because all of us lot are saying, please pay us less. This will make inflation come down. That's not how the world works. I want to read a tweet from someone who disagrees with you, a very distinguished columnist at the Mail on Sunday called Dan Hodges. Um, so he tweeted today, Still trying to get my head around the fact that on a day when inflation topped 11%, there are people on the left still seriously trying to argue wage restraint and public spending restraint aren't necessary. Now, having heard what you've just said and reading that tweet, you sound like exactly the kind of person on the left um, who he is struggling to get his head around your ideas in this case. I mean, how would you respond to that? How would you persuade Dan Hodges if he were open-minded about these things? I, I just despair sometimes of what people think economics is or how they might understand the economy. It's not just saying stuff that sounds a bit sort of economics-y and maybe it'll make sense. It obviously doesn't make any sense at all. If inflation is at 11% and Dan Hodges is there saying, if inflation's so high, we need to cut wages even more. In real terms, wages are already falling. We need to cut them even more. Now, basic common sense tells you that inflation is high. You need wages to be higher to, to match that. I mean, that's what should be happening. You need to think of a way to make that happen. And the effective way to do that, if you take the economy as a whole, is to start to squeeze profits. Profits have gone through the roof in the last 18 months or so, certainly since the pandemic. So you squeeze profits and you pay people more. Or you squeeze profits and you pay for your public services. That's kind of what you want to do in the big picture. Dan Hodges is saying something that doesn't make the slightest bit of sense. If prices are going up, why are you trying to cut people's wages? Complete nonsense. And people don't need to be too clever about this. Look, the, the economy is a, a struggle between different people and different groups of people over who gets what. If you're saying prices are going up, profits are going up, we're going to cut wages, you're saying it's really good that profits are going up. Well, we could do something different. We could say it's good to squeeze profits, make wages go up. So why don't we do that instead? The autumn statement tomorrow, obviously, it's, you know, it's, there's lots of economic decisions being made, also political ones. Now, the critique from the left of what the Bank of England are doing and what the government are doing is saying, look, you're doing contractionary monetary policy to the, to the Bank of England, to the government are saying you're doing contractionary fiscal policy. This is going to um, condemn us to a long recession. Now, this is all, it's a little bit difficult to make sense of this because the Conservatives, they're going to have a general election within two years. So why possibly would Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt be willing to plunge a country into a recession when they want to get re-elected in two years? How do you make sense of the politics of this? The broader politics of this, I think what you've seen is this institutional bias. It's the only way to talk about it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite ideology. I mean, we did have people who were real ideologues briefly uh, in government. I mean, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng really sort of committed to a particular view of the world, and they got kind of shoved out of the way fairly rapidly after 44 days in, in Liz Truss's case. And now you've got people who present themselves as sort of sensible managers, and they're surrounded by people in the media who also present themselves as kind of sensible, sober managers. But the institutional bias of the Treasury, of the Bank of England, of some of the institutions that are close to them, take the Institute of Fiscal Studies, is to say always that government should be prioritising basically its financial freedom 
uh, and its financial flexibility, in other words, its capacity to go out and borrow if need be, just in case of some emergency, like a, oh, another financial crisis, for example, in the future. If they privilege that, and the institutional bias is always towards privileging that. Sometimes this gets called the treasury view, that you should always balance the books, that kind of thing, over what happens in the real economy. Rupert Harrison, who was George Osborne's advisor, is now an advisor to Jeremy Hunt, is very blunt about this. He says, it was good we did austerity because when COVID turned up, it meant we had the borrowing capacity and the credibility to go off and borrow to pay for furlough. Now, this is wrong on the detail. Actually, what happened with furlough was that basically the Bank of England printed electronic money to pay for all this extra spending. Um, but it's also wrong in the, the, the broader picture because by doing austerity, you had a weaker real economy and you suffered more in COVID because of that. So you you have a government that has, might have some financial flexibility, but the real economy is worse off. And that's institutional uh, bias that comes through there. Politically, how I think Hunt and Sunak are going to play this is a bit like George Osborne did in 2015, which is actually rather cowardly. But to say, OK, the majority of these cuts are going to happen after 2024, after uh, the general election. We know there's a recession. We're not going to do cuts when there's a recession. They'll use some argument like this. Put the cuts off until after 2024 and try and create a political problem out of it for Labour. That's what Osborne did in 2015. And I think they're going to try and do the same thing today. Let's go to our next story. Britain's housing system is broken, but it's deadly too. In 2017, 72 residents lost their lives in the Grenfell fire. The inquiry came to a close just a week ago. And now a coroner has ruled that a two-year-old child lost his life after a Rochdale Housing Association repeatedly ignored his family's requests to tackle the mould growing in their flat. Awab Ishak died in December 2020. He had been taken to Rochdale Urgent Care a day earlier, suffering from shortness of breath. He died from cardiac arrest. Afterwards, mould was found in his blood and lungs. But from 2017 onwards, Awab's father had repeatedly told his landlord, that's Rochdale Borough-wide Housing Association, of the problems with mould. Now, as you can see here from these images, the black mould was extensive, but the Housing Association simply told the family to paint over it. Caused by inadequate ventilation, black mould is known to cause serious illnesses, and yet the family's pleas were repeatedly ignored, even after the NHS wrote to the Housing Association expressing concern for the boy's health. Now, despite these shocking failings, Gareth Swarbrick, the boss of Rochdale Borough-wide Housing, is still in post. He earns £157,000 a year. After the coroner's ruling, Swarbrick said this, I am truly devastated about Awab's death and the things we got wrong. We know that nothing we can say will bring Awab back or be of any consolation to his family. We have and will continue to learn hard lessons from this. We must make sure this can never happen again. Awab's death needs to be a wake-up call for everyone in housing, social care and health. We will take responsibility for sharing what we have learned about the impact to health of damp condensation and mould with the social housing sector and beyond. So it seems pretty amazing that it took the death of a kid before the housing association learned the lesson that that wasn't good enough. And now they're sort of posing, oh, we will teach the rest of the sector the dangers of mould. The rest of us already knew that, right? Anyone looking at those pictures could see that was a serious danger. And now they're saying, oh, we have learned these lessons. We can spread them around. So it's, it's not going down well, this state. What about central government, though? This is what Housing Secretary Michael Gove had to say about the tragedy. We're bringing forward legislation. That legislation will make sure that the housing associations who are responsible for social housing are held to account. This tragedy should never have occurred. There is no way 
that a young child being brought up in a home with damp and mould of this kind can be considered to be in a decent home. It's already the case that the standards that the Housing Association should have upheld have been breached, and that's why I've asked the guy in charge to come to this department to explain himself, because this is simply an unacceptable tragedy. It seems to me inconceivable that the chief executive of a housing association, um, earning um, you know north of £150,000, who's responsible for decent homes in Rochdale, the fact that this case was raised by Alice's father years ago, the fact that he had to get a solicitor on the case in order to try to make sure that he and his family were living in a decent home, the fact that they did nothing and hid behind procedure, I mean, honestly, it beggars belief that this guy is still in office. Now, Michael Gove is right. The Rochdale Housing Association did break guidelines about housing standards. But why did they ignore so many of the family's requests for help? This is Awab's family's lawyer giving their view. Living in these conditions affected every aspect of our lives. We didn't feel at peace with ourselves when in the property. All the time we felt troubled. We were anxious and fearful of what the mould was doing to Awab. Whenever friends would come to visit, they would tell us that the conditions that Rochdale Borough-wide housing were keeping us in were not right. We have no doubt at all that we were treated this way because we are not from the country and less aware of how the systems in the UK work. Rochdale Borough-wide housing, we have a message for you. Stop discriminating. Stop being racist. Stop providing unfair treatment to people coming from abroad who are refugees or asylum seekers. Stop housing people in homes you know are unfit for human habitation. We were left feeling absolutely worthless at the hands of Rochdale Borough-wide housing. So it's clear the family there feel that racial discrimination was at the source of their being ignored by the council. I mean, it also has you know echoes of Grenfell. That was a building which was the majority occupied by people of ethnic minority backgrounds. They had raised the alarm multiple times and they were also ignored. And that was by an arm's length tenant management organisation. Dahlia, every element of this story is just appalling, isn't it? It's absolutely horrendous to see. And there are two things here. You know, first of all, I think it's incredibly important and brave of the family to name this as an as an example of systemic racism. I think that that public health and you know, housing is very much an issue of public health. That public health racism connection is very important. We saw in COVID, for example, where you have disproportionate people of, uh, disproportionately people of color dying from COVID and that be, and it being explained away as some kind of biological fact of race when obviously race is not biological, but systemic racism can have biological effects. And when it comes to COVID, when it comes to breathing issues, when it comes to respiratory issues in particular, we see this both in housing. I'm sure that, that the fact that so many people of color and working class people are living in mold, moldy and damp housing probably didn't help when it comes to their susceptibility to COVID. I think that that statement by the housing association was completely disgusting. I'm not a any any. I'm not an expert in plumbing or you know architecture or whatever. I know that. Damp and mold is a health risk. That is basic information. It shouldn't have taken a young child to die in order for a housing association to act like they are then going to become a beacon of knowledge within the sector. This is, we know, we have the medical expertise, we have the technological ability, we have the financial ability to not have anyone in the 21st century dying 
from mold and damp exposure. And so the fact that this has happened is a choice. It's a political choice. And, you know, the tragedy of of social housing in this country, it is truly Dickensian. You know, half a million social homes in this country do not meet basic health and safety standards. There's no point in having health and safety regulations if there's no resources being put in to actually enforce those standards. And not only is the government, and this is where, you know, Michael Gove acting brand new about this is so enraging to watch because not only is the government not resourcing social housing and good quality social housing um, so that people aren't left in the hands of negligent landlords like this, but they are actually passing legislation that makes holding landlords and housing associations accountable for the conditions in which their tenants live. That is more difficult because of legislation introduced by the Conservatives. In the tw- in 2016, they voted down an amendment by the Labour Party to the housing and planning bill that would make landlords responsible for ensuring that the accommodation that they rent out is fit for human habitation. And to me, this is really, there, there's obviously a lot of accountabilities held at the doorstep of this particular government, but it really is part of a long-standing attack on the concept of social housing. It's something that begins with Thatcher selling off council homes and it has continued as a managed decline of the concept of social housing. And that is where we are seeing an increased transfer of wealth from the government, not directly into housing, but to private landlords and housing associations. And we know that in the fact that We are spending more. The government spends a huge amount on housing benefits every year. And yet the number of people who are A, housed and B, housed in livable and hospitable, healthy conditions declines year upon year. So what that tells us is that the managed decline of social housing is not about what's best for balancing the budget. It's not about it being too expensive. It is about an economy that is designed to transfer wealth from the state, from collective entities to private sector, to the private sector. And that comes from a government that is disproportionately made up of landlords. I think 25% of parliament is made up of landlords who, you know, have buy to let properties. And this is the consequence of that. And that decline is is about it's about rewiring our economy to capture uh, housing as an asset rather than being an essential right to capture it as an asset to make a very small number of people wealthy but I also think there's a political element because let's not forget the concept of social housing wasn't just about housing as a right for all it was also about people of different classes of different races of different backgrounds living together in the same built environment, which has a certain kind of political impetus to it and a political character to it. And I think that as well is what we are seeing being attacked by the managed decline of, of social housing um, in it overall. And it's not just the Conservative Party, it's also the Labour Party, where we are seeing the political imagination of the Labour Party shift away from funding social housing towards making everyone a a property owner. You know, I think it was at Labour Party conference, the big housing headline was we want to make 70% of um, people in Britain homeowners. To me, that is a politically bankrupt aim 
and actually collective socialized housing should be the goal because housing is not an asset that should be captured for value. It's not an investment. You know, it's not part of an investment portfolio. It is a social right and it's a collective right. And, you know, we really need to ask ourselves how in a developed country we got to a position where being able to afford a home that doesn't make you ill, how that became such a luxury that only the very wealthy and their children could even imagine it being a constant part of their life. And, and that, is, that is a political choice that has been made. Next story. With the Prime Minister away at the G20 in Bali, it was the turn of the deputies to handle Prime Minister's questions in Parliament. That meant Dominic Raab had to face Angela Rayner, a difficult proposition in a week where Raab has faced a growing number of allegations of bullying and misconduct. Now, after days of dodging and denial, this morning the Deputy Prime Minister finally acknowledged formal complaints about his misconduct. But his letter contains no hint of admission or apology. This is anti-bullying. This, this is anti-bullying week. Will he apologise? What Rayner's referring to there is a letter that Raab wrote to the Prime Minister just hours before their clash. He posted it on social media saying this, I have written to the Prime Minister to request an independent investigation into two formal complaints that have been made against me. I look forward to addressing these complaints and continuing to serve as Deputy Prime Minister, Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor. Now, this is the first time that formal complaints have been mentioned. And since then, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said he will personally pick an investigator to look into them. I'm not sure if that's supposed to inspire confidence. Now, one of those complaints is about Raab's time as Foreign Secretary, and the other is about his last stretch as Justice Secretary. She asked about uh, the complaints. I received notification this morning. I immediately asked the Prime Minister to set up an independent uh, inquiry into them. I'm confident I behave professionally throughout, but of course I will engage thoroughly and look forward, Mr Speaker, may I say, look forward to transparently addressing any claims that have been made. So, Mr Speaker, let me get this straight. He has had to demand an investigation into himself because the Prime Minister is too weak to get a grip. A Prime Minister in office less than a month with a disgraced Cabinet Minister resigned with his good wishes, the Home Secretary who breached the Ministerial Code and risked national security still clings on, and now the Prime Minister defends his deputy whose behaviour has been described as abrasive, controlling and demeaning. With junior staff, Mr Speaker, too scared to even enter his office. And that's without mentioning the flying tomatoes. The Deputy Prime Minister knows his behaviour is unacceptable. So what's he still doing here? Deputy Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I'm here and happy to address any specific point she wishes to make. Uh, Well, that never happened, uh, she says, from a sedentary position, and I uh, will thoroughly rebut and refute any of the claims that have been made. She hasn't, in fact, she hasn't, in fact, put a specific point to me. If she wishes to do so, and this is her opportunity, I'd be very glad to address it. Now, it was a little bit risky to invite Rayner to raise specific points, and that's exactly what she did. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Maybe he just doesn't think there's a problem or maybe he's suggesting that civil servants are liars. Now he's, rep- 
reportedly banned from meeting junior staff without supervision. While we await an inquiry the Prime Minister hasn't even instigated from a watchdog he hasn't even appointed. In the Prime Minister's letter he did not say how and when this will be investigated or by who. No ethics, no integrity and no mandate and still no ethics advisor. So when will they appoint an independent ethics advisor and drain the swamp? Interesting. She went for drain the swamp the day after Trump announced his candidacy. Not that I'm saying she's aping him. It's an, it's an interesting phrase. Anyway, there were two specific points there. That's what Dominic Raab was asking for. Have you been banned from meeting civil servants alone? And when will you appoint an ethics advisor? Now, I don't need to tell you that Raab couldn't give a straight answer to either. Um, Dahlia, what did you make of that exchange? We've got another bullying story in, in Westminster. I'm never sure how how big a deal one should make of these, given it's all, you know, it's all going. It's very much a Westminster story, but at the same time, you know, potentially it matters. I mean, I feel like if I was a civil servant, I wouldn't want to be left alone in a room with that vein on his head without supervision. It looks like it's about to like burst out of his head. It's like, I actually can't focus on anything else when I'm watching him. But um, yeah, I mean, I said this uh, last week, I, I always find it kind of a bit, sort of surreal when we talk about these conserv particularly conservative politicians who wreak like wreak untold havoc on the lives of everyday people in such a callous way that it turns out that that that, that they're also interpersonally awful. Um, you know, I mean this is Dominic Raab is a man who is against the Human Rights Act, who peddles the MRA myths of you know, reverse sexism, who blames feminists for basically everything bad ever that happens to a man. Um, he wanted to scrap minimum wage laws for people under the age of 21. All of these things total up, you know, it doesn't surprise me that someone who has that, who uses his political power to those ends also happens to be a nasty piece of work uh, on a on a personal level. And I, and I think you know, Raina does do really well at the dispatch box. I think that she had a really good performance there. I would like to see similar passion and vim when it comes to bullying and harassment in her own party, which takes place a lot of the time against people that at one point I'm sure she considered to be political allies. I'm thinking in particular, obviously, of Apsana Begum, who was left, I would argue, deliberately exposed to um, her ex-husband, who was allegedly abusive. And, you know, as far as she was concerned, his, his abuse was weaponized against her by the Labour Party. I think, you know, things like blocking, um, you know, longtime Labour activists and local community members and local community activists from running, um, using kind of weaponizing bureaucracy in this way, I'm sure that that all suggests a pretty rotten and intolerant and aggressive party culture. And so, you know, I think really that was political performance, which is fine. I mean, that's what that's what PMQs are, are for. But I, I don't think that um, I'm necessarily reassured that things would be wildly different under a, a Labour government. I don't think that um, there would be a fundamental change in the in the culture of politics, because all of the evidence of Starmer's labour suggests that, you know, dissent and other kind, any kind of conflict within the party is dealt with in very aggressive and sharp elbowed ways. So 
a good political performance by Angela Rayner. I just wish it was indicative of deeper political conviction. But I guess, you know, that's not what PMQs are for. I always say, I hope Labour win the next general election. I'm sick of this Tory government, but I hold no illusions that we then won't still have a cabinet full of assholes. You know, that, that's, that comes with the territory. Well, that doesn't excuse it, but I just think, you know, everyone getting all high and righteous, like, I can't believe you behaved in this unpleasant way. Like, have you seen who you're sitting next to? Let's go to our next story. Donald Trump has announced he will be running to be the Republican candidate in the 2024 presidential election, and he's running on his record. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, and my fellow citizens, America's comeback starts right now. Two years ago, when I left office, the United States stood ready for its golden age. Our nation was at the pinnacle of power, prosperity, and prestige, towering above all rivals, vanquishing all enemies, and striding into the future, confident and so strong. In four short years, everybody was doing great. Men, women, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic Americans, everybody was thriving like never before. There was never a time like this. We turned the page on decades of globalist sellouts and one-sided trade deals, lifted millions out of poverty, and together we built the greatest economy in the history of the world. When the virus hit our shores, I took decisive action and saved lives and the U.S. economy. And by October of the same year, America was roaring back with the number one fastest economic recovery ever recorded. How about that? Of course, Trump didn't respond decisively to COVID. Instead, um, he went on television suggesting people could try injecting bleach. But even if it was purely coincidental, he could, in theory, have a decent economic story to tell about his time in power. In particular, inflation was lower than it is now. As I say, this was purely coincidental. But Trump is damaged by the recent midterms, which saw his candidates pull down the Republican vote. This was his explanation for why that happened. Much criticism is being placed on the fact that the Republican Party should have done better. And frankly, much of this blame is correct. But the citizens of our country have not yet realized the full extent and gravity of the pain our nation is going through. And the total effect of the suffering is just starting to take hold. They don't quite feel it yet, but they will very soon. I have no doubt that by 2024, it will sadly be much worse and they will see much more clearly what happened and what is happening to our country. And the voting will be much different. 2024. So that was Donald Trump saying that what's going to save his campaign is that everything is going to get much, much worse in the next two years. You're not ready for me now. We'll wait until you're really effing miserable in 18 months. Then you'll want me back. Is that a, is that a good pitch? As it stands right now, I would say that Donald Trump has a very weak pitch. Things change very quickly in politics. So I don't know if that's going to be true for a long time. But as it stands now, it's very weak. And I think that there's one reason for that. I don't think it's actually necessarily to do with his presentation of things. I think it's because 
Murdoch has said pretty openly that he is not going to back Trump in a presidential election, that he would even consider backing a Democrat over Trump, which I'm not even sure is true. I think that when it comes to it, the Murdoch press will always back a Republican. But uh, clearly, he's trying to essentially bluff about it and is and is very serious about the extent to which he doesn't want to see Trump win the primaries. And I think without that clout, uh, without that backing by the media establishment, without, you know, Fox News, without the New York Post, without the Wall Street Journal, I think it will be very tough for Trump to win another election. So I don't think he's in a strong position to run right now. And, and I don't think it's because of some sort of revelation or moral uplifting within the Republican Party. I think that the core of the Republican Party, first of all, is has been fundamentally changed by Trump. I think the the space rightwards that the uh, Republican Party operates in, that Trump created, is still very much there. I think Trumpism also made the Republican Party very aware that there's an incredibly fundamentalist, uh, extreme base that is not just made up of older people, but actually there is a kind of young generation there as well that is very committed, that is very extreme, that it has to hold on to in order to to win, but also it has to hold on to that base in a way that doesn't completely irreversibly alienate potential swing voters. And I think that that Trump's the kind of the, the stain of the sixth of January insurrection really clings to Trump in that way, and and it's very specifically associated with him, and that is alienating um, at the moment to to potential swing voters. So they need someone who can kind of cultivate and charm that central base, but without that particular association with um, the insurrection and the kind of denialism about the election results. And that and that's where a Ron DeSantis figure, who is the governor of Florida, who is very much seen as a front runner for um, the primaries uh, in, and is kind of front runner at the moment when it comes to who is going to be the Republican nominee, he still has those kind of central ingredients, those very extreme positions. He is against abortion, even in the case of incest and trafficking and rape. He's trying to ban, he's trying to ban critical race theory. He's very uninterested in climate change. He's very much about lowering taxes, government spending. He was also very, very bad on COVID in a similar way to Trump in terms of, you know, not really putting in uh, stay at home mandates, not locking down, etc, not having a mask mandate, even at the height of the pandemic. So he kind of represents that kind of core of Trumpism, but outside of the Trump package that is at the moment quite stigmatized. But the Trumpist base has not disappeared. The effect is still there. But I think that for, for Murdoch, for the Republican establishment, he is too much of a political liability at the moment because, because of that association with, with the insurrection. Things can change. So I don't, you can't hold me to it. In a year, it might all be different. But if the primaries were to happen tomorrow, I think it would be very difficult for, for Trump to win them. But I do think that obviously there is an interesting question here, which will affect what a, potential Trump candidacy could look like and how it could do, which is, you know, who will run for the Democratic ticket? I think that I don't think that Biden is a shoe in. I think he, you know, is not very popular. He is very fragile. He comes off very fragile. I think he's probably seen as too old 
to run again. And Kamala Harris has been basically completely absent. I don't know what's going on there, but definitely the Democratic establishment are not interested in pushing Kamala Harris as a potential successor to Biden. So it's an interesting question, you know, and it will probably impact how well a Trump candidacy would go. So for me, that kind of question of who would run on the Democratic ticket is is thrown up there as well. Of course, it might just be Biden anyway, but I don't think it's as certain as it otherwise would be if it was any other Democratic president. Final story of the evening. Navarro Media's Ash Sarkar has appeared on the BBC's Politics Live, and during a discussion on inflation, a topic close to my heart came up. There's one thing which people never talk about when it comes to inflation. It's something which is really winding me up. I don't hear the Conservatives talking about it. I don't hear Labour talking about it either, which is we're, we're hearing a lot about how interest rates are impacting homeowners. We're hearing nothing about what's going on in the private rental sector. I've got multiple friends who are coming to me and saying, my landlord's just put up the rent by £300. Other um, renters who I know have been kicked out and they've seen the same rubbish flat back on the market for, you know, six, seven hundred pounds more monthly rent. Um, everyone is being told to tighten their belts and rein in, uh, you know, their income apart from landlords. I'm sitting here feeling a bit teary because audience, I was one of those friends. Feel famous. My rent went up 300 pounds this year, a month. I mean, with three people, hundred pound each, but still pretty shocking. I think Ash was completely right there. We talk about this a lot on the show, obviously very expertly, articulately put by her. And I think that comparison actually to mortgage holders is correct because, you know, I don't want to start a war between renters and mortgage holders. There are lots of people who bought houses which are incredibly expensive because of our completely stupid economic system who now are going to face really crippling bills because, you know, they bought houses for half a million pounds. And if interest rates go from 1% to 3%, or 4% or 5% or 6%, that can massively increase their bills. So it's genuinely going to be difficult for mortgage holders. But it is somewhat frustrating that when interest rates rose, that essentially brought down a government. But renters have been facing unaffordable rents for decades. And this summer, average rents in London have got about 20%, 16% to 20%. And that didn't cause a political crisis at all. In fact, there was complete silence. And this is very, very difficult to live with, I can tell you from experience. So also over, over the long term, we see now you've got sort of people saying, I think the Lib Dems want to give people support if their mortgage interest payments have increased by 10% of their income. Now, fair enough. But what that doesn't take into account is that ever since the 1980s, actually, private renters have spent 30% of their incomes on rent and mortgage holders have spent 18% of their incomes on mortgage payments. In this country, it's very good to be a homeowner and very bad to be a renter. And the moment that homeowners are getting hit, political crisis, renters have been being screwed for decades. Now, this is not to say if you're struggling to pay your mortgage, I do have solidarity with you. But can renters get some attention to sometimes as well? Um, because it is renters who are, who are who have long suffered way more in this system than, than um, people in other housing tenures, whether they were owner occupiers, obviously, they're sorted. And then if you're paying a mortgage for a long time, that's been a pretty good deal. Not a great deal this year, but usually it is. Dahlia, what did you make of that intervention from Ash there? It was great, and it's but it just goes to show kind of the utter contempt. I don't understand. It's like this contempt for renters by our political and media class that people who rent housing is somehow are somehow seen as like failures because they didn't buy their own buy their own home. And it's like firstly, there's many reasons why someone will rent. Secondly, it's impossible to buy a home now, and it has been impossible for so many people for so long now. People don't have 
stable employment. Loads of people, loads of my friends are on flexible contracts. They're freelancers because there's no, you know, the standard employment contract is like going down. And so it's impossible to get a mortgage. Most people don't have a massive nest egg that they can, you know, dip into, or they don't have like inheritance, you know, that can subsidize a deposit. So it's just goes to show like, like how absent renters are from the conversation. And and she's totally right when it comes to the dire straits that renters are in. Not only do we have people's rent going up by hundreds of pounds a month, but also when you have to leave a property, trying to actually find somewhere new to rent now is impossible. We have people who are, you know, booking viewings into housing and, you know, but by the time they get to the home, someone's already taken it. Like there's also just a massive shortage in housing. And when it comes to, you know, mortgage payers versus, um, you know, renters, obviously there's no need, like that. nothing about advocating for the rights of renters in any way infringes on anything to do with mortgage payers. Because at the end of the day, the problem here is that the housing market has been captured and made into an asset for financial speculation, right? Rather than being seen as a socialized right. And that core problem lies at the heart of people who are being screwed over by ballooning mortgage rates and renters who are being screwed over by increasing rents. So the the core systemic driver of both of those issues are the same. So really, we should be joining together to fundamentally reorient how the housing system works in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I spoke to someone the other day who was asked to pay a thousand pounds just to view a house. My jaw was on the floor. It's unreal what is going on right now. Um, let's wrap up there. Thank you so much for all of your comments today. It's been very interesting. Thank you for joining me, Dahlia. Your comments have, of course, been interesting as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, and we will be back on Friday at 7pm for now you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media go to navaramedia.com slash support